It's June 13th, 2022. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 185 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hope you're keeping well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, from Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz, Durud Bashama. Hi, Groovy Shaya. Hi, Aziz. Hi, Captain Reza in the Hello, studio. Sir. Hello, the fabulous Keon. Hi, Gian. So uh, let me set up our guest coming up in a little bit. Uh, yeah. Joining me from Norway. Wow where he has gotten asylum and safety. This is an award-winning Iranian cartoonist who used his art as a lifeline to stay alive when he was um, he's placed in an immigration camp, which was more like a prison camp, yeah. for years yeah. wow. upon trying to seek asylum in Australia. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ali Dorani is his name, Eaton Fish, is his pen name. I know you guys have seen his cartoons. And and you really, you know, folks out there have to hear this story. Next Monday is uh, designated as World Refugee Day, and World Refugee Day is an international day designated by the UN to honor refugees around the globe. So it falls on June 20th each year and celebrates the strength and courage of people who've been forced to flee their home, uh, flee their home country to escape conflict or persecution. And so this World Refugee Day, I guess, is a is um, an occasion to build empathy mm-hmm. and understanding yep. for the plight of refugees and to recognize their resilience in rebuilding their lives. And this applies uh, close to home for us well, because uh, some of the members of the Rook team and our certainly our outer circle um, were asylum seekers mm-hmm. when they came uh, west. And so the UN mission for refugees is the following. Every person on this planet has a right to seek safety, whoever they are, wherever they come from, and whenever they are forced to flee. That's the goal, right? Yeah. And that's all very nice. And I feel like... Um, In theory. Uh, well, I, I, I feel like all of this can get pretty sanitized yeah. after a while. Like we tend to, to get to know people who are doing impressive things, who came West as refugees. I'm thinking of like Ali Parsa, yeah. you know, who yeah. is now this impressive CEO in London and landed in the UK as a, yeah. a teenage refugee. Uh, and in those stories, we lose sight of the trauma and the sometimes flight. terrifying, that's right, the ordeals mm-hmm. uh, that people go through to get away from, in the case of this show, uh, get away from Iran, yeah. right? Um, and so we're going to have Ali Dorani come on. And I really want people to hear this story because so this is a guy, I know we were just talking about before we came on air, you guys know a little bit about a guy that escapes Iran as a young man yeah. with the promise of Australian asylum, asylum. wants to get asylum in yeah. Australia, only to be put on a boat that, um, like when you hear the story, Reza, yeah. I'm, I know you know a little bit about it yeah. already, but I'm thinking you are gonna, so much of this is gonna actually- oh, Hits close Hits close, home. yeah. He gets on a boat that actually sinks, you know. Uh, what? That, and he thinks he's gonna die. He gets picked up by Australian authorities uh, with a bunch of other asylum seekers and put in an immigration camp, quote unquote, mm. on an island that's really more of a, prison like a barbaric prison uh remember that mission that the u.n mission for refugees and and how the disconnect of what really happens where he spends years in this uh 
prison or this you know immigration camp almost dies goes on a hunger strike finally he starts creating some cartoons he's a very talented cartoonist um, and these cartoons get out to the world make his story an international cause that leads him to finally getting accepted in Norway as an international refugee wow. um, and and you know now he's a political cartoonist known around the world uh, because he was drawing cartoons of his plight so um, quite a story I mean I'm I'm grateful that he's coming on the show with in the shadow of uh, or in the with with world refugee day coming up to share uh this story well, when you say australia because i'm i'm pretty i uh, like I, I i like to follow up on the immigration status of different um uh, western countries because like um, i did a bunch of documentaries on it and I, I like to keep updated and canada is just a we're welcoming immigrant country so mm-hmm. You know more so is Australia ostensibly. Ostensibly, that's, 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 that's the, the whole thing. thing. And they say welcome refugees, like but yeah. but that's wow. not exactly what but happens. That's not, yeah, well, like in Canada, we don't have closed camps in Australia. So what you're yeah. saying, it sounds like something that I heard before. They put them on an island. Yeah, they put the, yeah. this this. So um, it's not part of the Australian soil, essentially. The correct. Yeah. Or or that's, it's not. Yeah. It's but a, that's particular. Yeah. Like, uh, that's particularly Australia, which is mm. insane. But yeah. All right. Oh well, I can't well, wait we'll to get hear to story. Ali Dorani joining us from yeah. Norway in just a little bit. We're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on this ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're coming to you on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and Castbox. If you like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in both English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. And you can become a patron of our show. Support us by pressing the support us button at rookmedia.com. If you haven't checked out the website, all the uh, previous episodes, guests, different programs we have, all at rookmedia.com. Shout out to my my late late dad. Yeah, See the tattoo on my arm? That's right. Fat Hang. Hang. It's Fat Fat Hang's Tavalod. It's Fat Hang's... uh, My late father's birthday was June June 13th. Wow. Uh, He's celebrating up there. Wait a minute. So you you were born... June 9th. June 9th. Yeah. Speaking of which, happy birthday. Thank you. Happy belated. Thank you. Gian John. Nice to see you at the weekend. Yeah. Thanks for having us. We had a... (laughs) <laughs> we had a <laughs> there was a party there sure was it was, it uh, was, it was what it an was. eclectic interesting group of, like it was a massive massive I party I feel like anybody who was anybody in Toronto was there it so was Persian it was, it was Persian that's yeah. right there was a lot yeah. of Persians a lot of uh, my dear friend who's not uh, Persian was the DJ and very confused <laughs> yeah very confused about he what he was getting requests <laughs> for Persian songs I remember at one point he was like I don't understand what Fatane is. I was like, oh, somebody asked for Fatane. <laughs> oh, we gave him a few Persian songs, but, uh, you know, once again, I mean, I was like, wow, listen to this remix, this Prince remix he's playing. No one dancing. You know? <laughs> then he plays the Fatane. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, man. But it was really nice to see you all there. Hey, the folks, yeah, yeah, it was that was the the best birthday. My, I think my mom was the the star. She, you know? she really was, man. Yeah, like she stole the show. That's for sure. There were some nice performances too. There were some nice performances. Yeah. It was a. Uh, I was touched it's that there were performances. Are we being secretive people. about the performance? I don't know. Uh, I, maybe they don't want to be revealed. Uh, the performers, I but uh, identity. It yeah. was an incredible performance. Let me just say. We we we. Who knew that Cirque du Soleil could fit <laughs> in uh, <laughs> inside? <laughs> the home, yes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
okay, let's let's get to our feature guests. Um, thank you, guys. Captain Reza, the fabulous Keon, Groovy Shia. I'll catch you on the other side. My feature guest today has a fraught but ultimately inspiring story of perseverance and determination. Ali Dorani, better known perhaps by his pen name, Eaton Fish, is an Iranian cartoonist and activist who gained recognition for drawings about his everyday life while being detained in a notorious Australian refugee camp on Manus Island, Papua New Guinea, for almost four years. Ali received the Cartoonists' Rights Network International Award for Courage in Editorial Cartooning in 2016. His cartoons documented horrendous abuses and excesses at this camp. Ali was finally granted refugee status in Stavanger, Norway, with the help of the International Cities of Refugees Network and the Artists at Risk Connection Program. And he now has been living in Norway since 2017, continuing his work as a well-regarded cartoonist and advocate for refugees. But he also still experiences PTSD and severe OCD and panic attacks as a product of his harrowing experience and right now Ali Dorani Eaton Fish joins me from Stavanger Norway today hello sir uh, hi very nice uh, to have you on the program thanks for doing this yeah thank you for inviting me to the program you know first of all I mean Ali having seen your great cartoon works and having learned about your story it's 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 um, inspiring. It's great to know you're okay and that you're currently safe and working in Norway. How how are you doing these days in general? Uh, yeah, I'm actually working as a freelance artist. Almost I'm like a full-time artist. And uh, I do lots of cartoons and I work with lots of different projects connected to human rights. And I usually run a lot of seminars and uh, storytelling sessions with the students and I was very lucky to have this large audience, over 20,000 of students here in Norway. So, yeah. You've said in the past, art saved my life. Art yeah. gave me freedom. Do you still feel that way? Uh, yeah, I still follow that, but uh, it's a little different because it depends where you're living. Uh, yeah, I lived in prison and actually it was art that uh, introduced me to the world, it introduced me to the people in Australia and then like uh, international communities got to know me through art. So I usually say uh, in the situation where I lived, I, art actually saved my life. Hmm. Let me get into the story for people who don't know it. I mean, it's a... Uh, I don't even know if if telling this story is. Uh, I don't want to re-traumatize you or something, but I, but I know that you 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 tell this story intentionally because you want people to know what folks go through in these kind of refugee camps, right? You know, you know when you go to the therapist, they usually do these uh, talk therapies. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, I I learned that talk, talk, by talking about this story, I'm also doing. A, a process of healing for mm, myself mm. and uh, I learned that through all the therapy sessions that I have had in the past and uh, also I believe that without talking about the situation I had in the past and the, the current situations for other refugees and asylum seekers in Australia 
uh, talking about it is the only chance that uh, we can share the stories and we can be the voice for the, all the voiceless right. children in right. the detention centers in Australia. It's a great change. So, so let, let's get into the story. I mean, you you first adopted the name Eaton Fish after yeah. your boat sank in yeah. in the Indian Ocean when you were attempting to seek asylum in Australia. Let take me two steps back from that. When when and why? I mean, you're a kid from Iran. When yeah. and why did you decide to leave Iran? It was in uh, 2013, early 2013, that uh, I ended up in some circumstances that I had to leave the country. And I usually don't talk about the reasons I left Iran because uh, I cannot put my family's life in danger. Mm. Most of the stories that I tell are usually after I left Iran. Were you in Tehran? Yeah, I lived in okay. Tehran. Yeah. Okay, so you make the decision. I'm guessing with your fa- your family's blessing to try and get out of Iran, and you go yeah. to Indonesia first, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the, the thing is, lots of people ask me why didn't you go to Europe from the start, and the thing was, if I wanted to go to Europe, somewhere in Europe, anywhere, uh, I had to pass countries. La- I had to pass too many countries, you know to get to a safe destination and australia was kind of easiest way for me to get to safety because it was so far from iran and i could take a direct flight from tehran to south of indonesia and uh, so that was my chance to like get away as far as possible okay so if you so you managed to to leave iran and by the way i don't even know what the technicalities at that point in 2013 would nobody ask you in iran why you're leaving to indonesia you would i mean how did you, how did you actually get out of the country uh the thing is i got in touch with the it's i'm not sure if it's i should say these things but uh i got in touch with a person who was doing like human trafficking Mm -hmm. and it was someone i found on the internet so i just searched on the internet and i ended up to this telephone and then i called it and then the person told me that i can pay him and he helps me to get out and uh, so i i only met this person once and i gave him money and then he left and then i was like middle of the street and I was like, okay, I just gave all my money to this person and then he's leaving. But was that and person promising to get you to Australia or just to Indonesia? No, he was promising me to get me to Australia. Right. And he actually booked the tickets for me and he told me when and where I should leave and at what time I should leave. So uh, in terms of trust, I didn't have any trust to these people. Right. Uh, the only thing I did that I had to trust someone I had to trust the smuggler. I didn't have any other options. You by, know? By, by the way, I mean, you, you look very young. I mean, you, you're, you have a, a beautiful young look, but I, I don't actually know your age. Are you in your, would you, would you have been in your teens when you left? No, I was uh, 20 years old when I left. Okay. Iran. Okay. And now it's like 10 years, nine years after. Right. So I I'm- could do the math now. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but w- had you been anywhere in the world before? I mean, I, that's a, this is a pretty, daring thing for a 20 year old to do but i guess the circumstances in iran were enough that you you needed to you wanted to get out yeah exactly so uh, before uh traveling to indonesia i've never been out of iran and i never had plans to get out of iran and i never thought about leaving iran until six months before i left and uh so yeah suddenly my future changed and uh, i had to choose i had to make decisions that 
I would put my life in risk. Mm. And uh, but since I didn't have a proper option to choose, right? Then I I chose to leave. And also, my family safety was very important for me. And by me leaving the country, I actually uh, made my family be safer. Actually. Can I just ask you, without this uh, affecting what you don't want to talk about, but but uh, you've become known as an activist in terms of your um, political cartooning and your human rights activism stuff. Were you an activist in Iran at that time no. or no? No, no I wasn't then. So this activist. wasn't related to any activism. This was just… Uh, no, nothing. Yeah. No. So, so, you know, the thing is the situation about Iran is obvious. Mm-hmm. And it's like kind of cliche. I usually been asked these questions: Why did you leave Iran? And it's kind of a cliche because if you want to know like why I left Iran, the situation is so obvious, and we usually read a lot about Iran on the news. So, yeah, yeah. most of the people we, many of the people we have on this show, uh, who are in the diaspora, have not left Iran wittingly. You know, they've left because they had to leave. Uh, so we, yeah. um, we get it. So. So you're in Indonesia, you've given your money over to, there's this moment where you're led to a boat that is going to take you to Australia ostensibly. And and you've talked about the fact that you already could tell this was this smuggler's boat from Indonesia that was supposed to go to Australia was going to be a dangerous uh, ordeal. Can you describe it? Yeah, it's... uh uh, it's it was a very complicated situation because I was being taken to a beach somewhere in South Indonesia and I didn't really know where I was. I didn't have phone. I didn't have passport, and uh, I didn't have access to like uh, uh, internet uh, to find out a, a, a GPS and find out where I was. So uh, also it was the situation was very critical because I was like in middle of jungle. And I could not go back the way I started, you know. Uh, and uh, the only thing I could do was going forward. And uh, I, when I w- was close to the beach and I saw the boat, uh, I was actually telling myself that I'm just walking to my death. And I can't swim. Uh, wow, right. So I don't do swimming and uh, I've never learned it before and I still don't know how to swim. And the timing that I got to these small boats, there were like these carriers uh, taking people to these uh, bigger boats and uh, the carriers, they were like, uh, it was broken boats and there was water inside and mm-hmm. I was so scared that right. I'm going to sink. And uh, so, and uh, uh, just, just, just out of curiosity, how are you, how do you even communicate with people? Are you speaking sort of a, a English with people? I mean, how what, when smugglers in Indonesia, what how do you communicate with them? Uh, I didn't know how to speak English at that time. Wow, okay, and uh, it was very funny because when I was in Iran, I started learning English and I realized how difficult it is. And I uh, searched on the internet and I ended up to these uh, files that they teach you English in sleep. And uh, yeah, I tried to l- learn English in sleep and it didn't work. And when I was in Indonesia, I realized I never learned anything in English and I couldn't respond to anything. I couldn't answer any questions. And uh, with these, uh, the people, the carriers to the boats, uh, the only thing I could tell was like money. I have money and uh, they had they had the boat. So I knew what boat is in English. Mm. And I, I told them that take me to the boats, like by just saying like money and mm-hmm. boat. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And it looked like that the people, the local people in the area, they knew. 
uh, and their business was the smuggling people. Right, right, right. You know, they were making money because when we arrived at this beach, uh, there were hundreds of local people outside, and they came all around, all around me, and they 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 wanted to take my clothes off. They wanted to take my backpack with them, and uh, they were just there to like, uh, how do you say, it, to loot, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, from uh, from uh, the asylum seekers, and it was very scary. It was in the middle of jungle, and uh, yeah, it, uh, not knowing the language, not knowing where you are, not having a passport to like uh, escape from there, and not having uh, uh, communication devices. It was very scary. So you yeah. you see this boat, you're you you can't swim. You're terrified that this boat is going to sink. It, it does. So how do you even survive the boat sinking? Yeah, uh, before I got to the boat, I it was around like maybe two minutes, you know, standing in the beach and looking at the boat and looking all at all the people getting on these boats and going to the bigger boat. And it's like I, I was feeling that I'm walking to my death and I suddenly remembered all my memories from childhood, uh, all my plans for my life and everything came in front of my eyes. And... Uh, after two minutes, I just took this step. Uh, I went to the smaller boats and then I took my clothes off. So I only had like a short and a singlet because I was thinking if I have too much clothes on me and if I sink, uh, if I don't have clothes, it's going to help me to sink uh, like <laughs> like uh, lesser. Right. And then uh, when we got to the big boat. Uh, how, how many people uh, were on these boats? Uh, there were around 139 people, I think, if I'm correct. And were they from all around the world, or were they Iranians? Who who were they? Yeah, more than half of the boat was from uh, Myanmar, mm. and uh, there were some Iranians and uh, some people from uh, Arab countries, I think. Okay. And yeah. So what happens to the boat? Uh, the thing is, uh, I think I was very unlucky because as soon as I arrived at the boat, there was storm happening. Oh, boy. It was very funny because before we got to the beach, there was no storm. There was no rain. And as soon as we got to the boat, the storm started and big, big waves. And the, the boat looked big, but it was not a proper uh like touristic boat that you say you are sitting on it and it's going to take you to destination with uh, full of safety uh it was like a fishing boat it was kind of like lench i'm not sure what it is in english hmm. like uh, lench is in iran we call them lench uh, these wooden boats okay so the boat had the capacity of having all of us on board but it was packed so when all of us got on board the, the boat was packed and uh, there were a couple of uh, uh, Indonesian people uh, who were controlling the boat and uh, they started uh, moving towards the ocean and around 2000, uh, sorry, 52 hours after uh, we got to Australia's shore and that was when Australian Navy found us and uh, but the storm was so bad that the Navy told us that they cannot. We knew we had someone translating there. Yeah, there was someone who mm -hmm. knew speak how to speak English very well. And uh, the, the Navy told us that because of storm, they cannot take us uh, to the Navy boat. So they told us to go forward and they supported us from behind. 
by showing us the light and uh, showing us the direction, you know. And uh, at the same time, the boat was uh, sinking in uh, this, uh, uh, the pump engine didn't stop working suddenly. Oh, uh, yeah, and then the boat started ha- uh, being filled with water and there were some people trying to uh, throw the water out. And, you know, it was very kind of scary because I was like looking at all these children. We had uh, two babies on board and uh it, it was very like uh, scary for children actually did you um i mean did you think you were going to die well i hoped i won't die uh but there was no guarantee hmm. especially i saw the boat is filling with water and then i was like okay uh, then this is the end probably uh but uh, luckily we got to the shore very f- uh, fast and then uh, the australian uh, navy uh came and uh, uh, took us out of the boat and so, so so you get to australia i mean this is something that i think um and i'm glad you 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 are one of the people speaking out about this um oftentimes we think countries like like australia or like canada where we we're, we're located here are very open in terms of asylum for refugees clear clear refugees who need to uh, you know uh, uh who need asylum uh but it, it it didn't quite work out that way did it in australia you you end up being sent to a detention center and you end up um after a few months in this menace island why 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 do you end up there yeah, the thing is, when the fishing boat started moving from the ocean, it was, uh, I think it was 20th of July, 2013. And uh, the, the, before that, uh, the the smugglers came uh, to us and then they took all our communication devices away. They took all our passports away, all our documents away. And uh, if I knew that Australian government has made a, a, a law to stop the refugees and asylum seekers entering Australia, I for sure would not go to Australia. But the thing was, I didn't have communication devices. We didn't have TV. And the timing that I was on the boat, unfortunately, Australian government created the law Hmm. while we were on the way to Australia. And uh, when we arrived, uh, they took us out of the fishing boat and they uh, took us to the beach and then they gave us... uh, uh, like uh, numbers, and they told us that we are under Australia's protection now. And they told us that we are going to be sent to like uh, immigration camps. And then from there, uh, the, uh, the process of immigration starts. At first, they didn't tell us that they're going to send us to another country. And then they're going to put us in jail for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, how does the how, how exactly does that work? I mean, how do they justify sending you? Because Manus Island Detention Center is actually actually part of is Papua New Guinea, right? It's not actually even it's not in Australia. Um, yeah. So h- how do they legitimize that? This is part of a bigger political game, actually. If you want to go through it, go through it. Uh, but the thing was uh, that Australian government uh, rents like islands in other countries, like poorer countries that they're willing to rent their islands out, you know. And uh, what they do is that they rent these islands and then they build accommodation in there, not because they want to send refugees there, but because they are like planning to have army bases there. Hmm. Like where I lived, it was supposed to be an army base. 
uh, but they turned it to detention center for refugees, you know. And uh, it was very interesting because what Australian government did was they build all these accommodations in Manus Island. And then when the international communities and human rights organizations started complaining to Australia about why do you imprison innocent people, Australia yes. would go on TV and say, we are not imprisoning them. It's Papua New Guinea's responsibility. <laughs> so they used to refer us to each other. You know, Australia says Papua New Guinea and Papua New Guinea says it's Australia's responsibility. And uh, Australian government again would not call the detention centers prison or detention center. They used to call it immigration center. Right. So what we know about immigration centers is that people go there to go through immigration process. And then after that, they're free. Right, right. But they would never say, they would never say, how long are you going to stay in this immigration center? And why are you? Why, why was I locked in this immigration center? Why right, the I the immigration center. I mean, having learned some of the details now of your um, harrowing stay there, the immigration center is is a bit more is, is more of a prison, really, and, a, exactly. and a, a prison camp, and and not one that. I mean, this this Manus Island detention center is turns out is notorious for rampant human rights violations. It's been condemned by the United Nations and human rights organizations. Give, give us a sense of just, uh, I mean, I know you could spend days talking about this, but just, just how horrific are the conditions there? Were the conditions for you there? Yeah, uh, Manus Island is on equator. So it's very, very hot and humid every day. And uh, it's very nice for for people to go to Equator and live there for one or two weeks, you know, and have like a holiday there. But when you are being forced to live in a place where you're not supposed to be there, mm. you know, by the international laws, you were supposed to be protected, not being sent to jail. And then this jail is not being called jail. It's called immigration center, but it's totally locked. Mm. And uh, what they did was they put us there without giving us access to basic human rights, like having access to telephone, internet, uh, having access to lawyer, visitors. No journalists were allowed to come to, to the island to visit us. Nobody was allowed to take any news out. Even workers, they were told that if they take any news out, they might get between uh, one to two years sentence in prison. So it was a very, very restricted area just to keep uh, asylum seekers. The reason I know some of the story, you know, of how just how difficult it is, is through your work, through your cartoons, and you, the, some of them are so powerful and so poignant. You have one cartoon about Manus Island that is is that on the face of it, it's it's sunny. It looks like a sort of resort island that that is uh, you know kind of an oasis, and just below the surface is a big skeletal head, um, yeah. which is essentially what you've just described. And and you do this with images so so powerfully. What's interesting to me about how you've become this internationally recognized cartoonist is it wasn't something that you necessarily had intended to be doing, if I understand correctly, when you got to Australia. Um, you you enjoyed drawing when you were a kid, but it wasn't um, the first thing that came to mind uh, as part of your asylum. When, when did you make the decision to start drawing cartoons? I mean, this would be a fateful decision because it would affect um, how you would finally um, get out of this situation. But when was that decision made? Yeah, uh, 
I was moved to the detention centers and it was two months after where, you know, I had OCD since when I was in Iran. Uh, I got OCD. We had we had a car a car accident with all my family. And then after the car accident, I got OCD. Uh, and it was kind of because of PTSD as well, mm -hmm. because of the accident. And uh, but my OCD was very mild when I was in Iran. Uh, I did not suffer because of it. But when I was moved to this detention center and then my life was out of control, my OCD got out of control. And at some point, it was just two months that I arrived in Australia. I started washing books and, in and dictionaries and then papers because I was thinking they're dirty. And uh, when this happened, I decided to see a doctor to see a medical nurse. And they told me that I have to take medication. It's really bad. The OCD is really bad. And uh, they thought that I have to take medication. But I didn't really want to take medication because I was afraid of medication. You know, I was thinking uh, that with medication, I'm going to go crazy. Right. And uh, what happened was I came back to the room, to my room, and then I suddenly remembered I used to draw when I was a child. I used to draw cartoons and uh, what happened was I decided to use cartoons as a coping mechanism, cartooning as a coping mechanism. And I didn't have papers. So at first I started drawing on the walls in, the, in my room and then I got access to papers and yeah. And then, you know, the first drawing I did was uh, about, because we had like lots of people in one small area mm -hmm. and standing in the line to get food was uh, like it could uh, could turn to a very very dramatic situation. Mm -hmm. uh, people end up fighting with each other. Uh, so what I did was the first cartoon I did was drawing a food line and asking people to stand in the line uh, one by one to get their food. And suddenly this drawing got so much attention from the workers in the camp. So what they did was they copied my drawing and then they sent it to the other areas. Uh, and like put it on the wall. So if people want to go get food, they used to see this cartoon, stand in the line one by one, get your food. And then uh, when I saw this reaction from the workers, from the authorities, I got interested to do more. And the second drawing I did was I drew Australia's map on my T-shirt and I wrote down that I am only a refugee. Yes, it's and become kind sure of an iconic image that that drawing that you did. But but uh, two steps back, I mean, it seems phenomenally brave to start doing these drawings. I mean, when I hear about your experience there, that you're you're starving at at some points, you're you're assaulted, you're you're the the conditions are horrendous. Um, everything that anyone can imagine about some kind of horrible detention is is basically what you suffer there. Um, the decision to start drawing cartoons that would depict the conditions at Manus Island seems like a very courageous thing to do. Were you were you not scared that um, you're going to somehow be punished or, or um, um, dealt with for doing this? Uh, you know, at first I was in an Australian detention center inside Australia. So when uh, when I drew the drawing with this uh, map on it. Uh, the immigration authorities saw it and then I, I saw this reaction from them that they wanted me to stop drawing. They wanted me to stop uh, sharing this horrific story about Australia. And uh, what, when I saw this, that reaction, I suddenly got 
even more brave to do it. Hmm. And I've never been uh, looked at uh, as a political cartoonist before. And then now, like, I'm doing this and then I see this reaction. And I, I looked at it as a very uh, powerful tool for myself to, to protest, you know, yes. to show my disagreements with the government. Yes. And then when they took me to Manos Island, then I was in a situation that I, I, I told myself, I don't have anything else to lose. The only thing I have is like doing cartoons and documenting my own life. And uh, there I didn't have any thought of sharing my drawings with outside world. So I started just doing cartoons and documenting my own life by doing it. How do you get to share them with the, the rest of the world? I mean, there's so many ways in which uh, I frankly hate social media as, as, and so many ways in which it can be toxic. But in your case, um, it was a savior. Uh, it was that lifeline that really social media, we would hope it to be. Uh, wh when did you and how did you realize that you could get your works out to um people around the world, people in Australia and then internationally who would be able to help you eventually? Yeah, it, it started from, uh, it was this first month in Manus Island. I call it prison, Manus Island prison. I drew a, I drew a picture from another perspective from a sky about the map, about the camp, about mm -hmm. the detention centers. And what happened was the Australian authorities, they thought this is a escape map. They thought I drew this because I want to escape from the prison. Mm. So what they did was they started restricting me from having papers and pencils. And they started telling to all the workers to not to copy my drawings out and not to carry my drawings out. And uh, as I said at the start, when I lived there, we didn't have access to basic human rights. We didn't have telephone, internet. And uh, what I did was I started stealing papers from the authorities. Because I asked them nicely and they didn't give me. And then I used to hang around and then steal a paper, bring it to my room, draw cartoons on it. And uh, for two years, I just drew cartoons without being able to show it to anyone outside world because of not having access to Internet. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, two years after. It was in early 2015 when... Australian government allowed me to have access to internet, allowed me to have access to internet 45 minutes for a week. And this internet uh, was not like uh, in the morning or in the afternoon. It, my internet time was in the middle of the night. So I had to keep awake to, to be able to use the internet. This, in, this small internet availability was such a huge opportunity for me yeah. because it was the first time in two years that I could reach outside world. And what I did was, uh, I mean, the internet is so slow there. It's like a middle of Pacific Ocean. Right. Uh, what I did was I logged into my Facebook account and I started sending random messages to random people on Facebook, telling them that I'm a cartoonist living in prison in an immigration center and I need help. And I continuously did this for over a year and a half and nobody replied to my messages. So this means I had 45 minutes internet and I had to go to the computer room, use the internet, come back and wait for one week, go back and then 45 minutes, send messages to people, come back and wait. And this lasted over a year without anybody replying to me.
until uh, I got a bit lucky. Somebody replied to my message and then she asked me about who I am and why I'm sending her these messages. And the communication between me and her took months until she trusted me. She believed that I'm a person. I'm an actual person mm. because I had only 45 minutes internet and she had too many questions. And then each time I went to the internet room, I had to answer one question, come back and wait. And then next week, go back and she has another question and then come back and wait. And it's, it's, it sounds so funny because we are living in, in a world where life without internet is almost impossible. Right, right. And then imagining that somebody uh, had 45 minutes internet, slow internet to be able to reach out to the world. It was, it was very like, uh, it's very interesting. And this is happening in Australia. This is not happening in North Korea. Right. This is right. not happening in. This is not happening in Iran. And it's this not. It's not happening a uh, hundred years ago. This is you know less than a decade ago, right? So, uh, it's 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 crazy. It's a it's a, a wild story. Do you, I I want to refrain from you, you you said cliche earlier from asking over and over again. Well, how did you keep going? You know, how did you yeah. find the the way to deal with this? But I mean it. Did you have, um, I'm thinking there's other people in the detention center. I mean, was there solidarity you could gain from other folks who were there? H how do you, when you have no way to speak to the outside world, you have no sense of whether you're going to get asylum, you are going through this horrific experience. How did you maintain a sense of hope? Yeah, the thing was, uh, the reason I kept going was that I didn't want to die. That's why I left Iran. So I had lots of times I had suicidal thoughts during the time I lived there. Okay. And I always told myself that if I wanted to die this easy, then I would have stayed back home. So this kind of, uh, this kind of thought gave me some hope. And also while I was drawing and we didn't have access to internet there, uh, my drawings, my cartoons were kind of, kind of newspapers in the camps. So each time I draw a cartoon, uh, all the other detainees, they used to come and have a look at it and then give comments. And then, you know, it was something interesting that people liked to see right. my next drawing. And uh, so these things all together uh, made me uh, have hope, you know. Uh, and But I never had hope on doing something with my drawings, like changing anything. You know, the only thing I was doing there was documenting my own life. Well, there's an there's an interesting um, paradox that emerges. There's an interesting thing that happens two, three, four years in, which is that um, at, at this point, you through the connections that you do make, including with a prominent cartoonist um, with The Guardian, who starts also uh, posting your your works and, and corresponding with you. And I know there's a lot to tell about those stories, but basically you start gaining international popularity. And by 2016, you receive the award for editorial cartooning by the Cartoonists uh, Rights Network International. Um, this, is a, this is such a strange situation where you're now getting international popularity, you're winning a, a prize, but you can't accept it in person because of your imprisonment. Uh, tell, tell me about what that was like for you. The, you know, after this access to social media, I was able to somehow send my drawings to Australia. And then the, the, these, the people who helped me to publish my drawings, they started publishing them on newspapers and different galleries and suddenly gained 
so much attention inside Australia in 2016, early 2016. And uh, how I sent my drawings out was also interesting because I could not just go to a post office and send them. Mm -hmm. I had to find someone and then ask this person if he could take my drawings to Australia and then uh, actually smuggling my, my art to Australia because nobody was allowed to take my drawings to Australia. And uh, suddenly gaining all these attention. Oh, I see. You couldn't, you couldn't draw them and send them on social media? Uh, for a very long time, no. Because right. we didn't have, we didn't have any scan scanner. Right, right, no. right, right. And we were not allowed to have telephone. Uh, but at some point, I remember <laughs> the Australian government put a scanner there. They didn't know this printer has a scanner. Hmm. So what I did was I used it as a scanner and I scanned some of my drawings and published them on social media until 2016. And suddenly I got a call from uh, this uh, uh, organization in America, CRNI, and they told me uh, that they're, I'm going to be nominated for the uh, editorial Courage in Cartooning Award. And then... Uh, Actually, it's opposite. It's courage in editorial cartooning. And uh, so I couldn't believe it. It was like I told myself, like, what now? Like, okay, you're winning an award. And what now? Hmm. Is, there gonna, is there anything going to change? And obviously nothing changed. But recognition that I got from the cartoonist organization, it was very important to, and it was very, it, effect, it affected this story to be shared even more. Mm-hmm my stories and my, uh, you know, kind but of it, my But it also lives. must have just been, I mean, on, on a number of levels. Now you're, you're sort of making these connections internationally. You're realizing that you've got a voice. You're realizing that your cartoons are good. I mean, that people are, are I mean, not just good, but award-winning. Um, it, it must have been a real shot in the arm. And yet by early 2017, you go on a hunger strike. Um, t tell, tell me about what that was about. Yeah. So one of the biggest uh, uh, problem I ended up after my drawings were published and the recognitions was that the, the, lots of authorities started having personal problem with me. You know, this was not only a problem from the government. Then there were people who were not happy for me talking about Australia like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was before uh, 2017 that even the police uh, guards uh, from Papua New Guinea and uh, uh, Royal Police Office, they came to the camp and then they put me in a car and then they beat me up as much as they could at one night. So I saw all these, all these outcomes, you know, and I was like, okay, my drawings are doing something. That's why people are angry. That's why workers are angry. And of course, at the same time, there were other workers that they were they 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 loved my drawings. You know, we didn't have only horrible workers there. We had people who cared for us, of course, there as well. And uh, after all these recognitions, I started getting lots of harassments from some of the authorities, and uh, also the immigration, the Papua New Guinean Immigration Department. Uh, do, you, do you think that they just didn't like the fact that you were getting this attention or did, do you think they saw you as a legitimate threat? Maybe they saw me as a threat. Hmm. Yeah, because, uh, you know, cartoons have 
big impact in the society, especially in the modern society. You mm-hmm. see, mm-hmm. cartoonists make so much changes in the world. You know. Yes. So, of course, my cartoons were doing something to them, and uh, exposing true. And by by end of 2016, I was not only sharing cartoons about my own life, but I was sharing cartoons about other people's life as well. So. Yeah, the attention I got, the attention I got internationally was harming the authorities and the immigration departments. And uh, until it was in February 2017, where I was tired of the harassment. I was tired of uh, getting all these horrible letters from the government. Uh, I uh, started a hunger strike, which actually led to a huge cartooning campaign in the world again uh, without me wanting it you know i just wanted to do a hunger hunger strike and complain about my situation and then complain about all these harassments i didn't have any other options you know uh, except doing hunger strike but this hunger strike suddenly led to so much international attention and uh, artists all around the world started running a campaign hashtag eating fish yes and asked all the cartoonists all the artists all around the world to do cartoons for eating fish and uh, by that time i was on the day 18th of uh, hunger strike and i weighted only 43 kilograms and and I was very skinny, very sick until like day 22. And I realized this campaign is so huge now. And uh, I didn't want to kill myself again. So I ended the, the hunger strike uh, on the day 22. And then I was just looking at all these uh, mm. people marching on the streets in Australia, carrying my drawings around, asking the government for my freedom. And uh, I realized such a big impact my drawings had uh, by just being, if uh, you know what I mean. You finally achieve um, asylum in Norway by the end of that year, by 2017. And I feel like in the movie version of your life, which um, I can only imagine might happen one day, at least the Hollywood version, you, you arrive in Norway and uh, the sun is shining and, you know, you're, you're this uh, person relieved of, of the detention you've been in and, and life is joyous. But you had by this point been through so much and I could only imagine that you would have trust issues <laughs> no matter mm. where you go. What was it actually like when you finally got to Norway? Yeah, uh, the first uh, email I got from ICORN, uh, the organization you just mentioned earlier, International Cities of Refuge Network. Uh, I didn't know what ICORN was. I didn't re- I wasn't in touch with any international organization before uh, to seek help. I suddenly got an email while I was on hunger strike saying that we are working on your case. We are trying to get you out of there. And uh, I just thought, okay, this is just someone wanting me to feel good. That's it. Uh, Until it was around uh, September 2017, almost like eight months after the uh, the hunger strike, uh, I was being moved to Papua New Guinea capital city because of medical treatment. Uh, I had physical damages because of the hunger strike. 
and they had to move me to the capital city for medical treat proper medical treatment mm. and uh, i got an email suddenly from the norwegian uh, immigration department saying that uh, i'm welcome to go to norway and uh, they have worked on on my case and then um, uh, they want they were like welcoming me uh, to take me to norway and uh, it was kind of unbelievable like uh, i was like are they lying to me are they going to send me send me to another area in exile right or are they really which but which boat am i going to have to get on to yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and uh, at, at some points i was even thinking they're going to send me back to iran and they're just lying to me you know and uh, there was this person uh, when I was in hospital uh, from the European Union came to me uh, at one point, and then he told me to not to worry about anything. And uh, there is a lots of countries working on my case to get me out. He didn't he didn't uh, specify which country, but he told me that there are people working on uh, my case. And uh, I did not believe nothing until I left Papua New Guinea. Uh, yeah. When you got to Norway, what was it like? How long did it take you to decompress and uh, I don't know, feel like a normal person, or do you, or do you feel like a normal person? Yeah. The thing is, uh, when I got the call from immigration, Norwegian immigration, uh, I was in hospital in Papua New Guinea, and I was almost dying because of internal infection. And uh, they wanted me to take a photo of myself for uh, the travel documents that they were preparing for me. And they were also sending me pictures of Stavanger, the city I'm currently living in. And they told me that I'm going to be moving to Stavanger soon and then living in Stavanger. And uh, the photos were taken all in summer. And when I came here, it was middle end of winter. And then it was so dark and gray. And uh, the freedom I got was not a healthy freedom. Uh, I suddenly got freedom without any preparation. Mm. So when I came to Norway, I, uh, I even went through a deeper depression uh, because the freedom I got was not healthy. Uh, what does that and, mean? Uh, what does that mean? The freedom I got was not healthy. The thing is, you know, if you're a criminal, if, you, if you're a terrorist, you know, if you're a criminal, if you're a killer, a robber, uh, you go through judge and then the judge tells you that you have to spend two years in prison. Mm -hmm. You have to spend 10 years in prison. So you know when it's going to end. Yeah. So you, you can prepare yourself six months before you're leaving. You wow. know, you're going to go get freedom on this day, this exact day. Not to mention you and likely have a representative, a lawyer, you have all of these kind of exactly. things. Exactly. And when I got my freedom, I was still in prison. I was still sick at the hospital with uh, too many security guards around me. Mm. So I just walked out of the hospital and detention center and I walked to the airport and then I got to the airplane and then I left. I believe that that sudden freedom was not a healthy freedom. It's not a healthy freedom for anyone in that situation. Uh, yeah, when you are a criminal, you have a lawyer and then the lawyer comes and tells you like, you're going to get your freedom in six months. So you know, you know when to expect the freedom. Do you feel like you have a healthy freedom now? Yeah, I think uh, a year after I arrived in Norway, I 
believed that I was healthy. I had a healthy freedom. But the first, especially the first six months, I was very sick. And the second six months, it was the timing that I was getting used to the freedom. And a year after, I, I believed that I was a total free man. Ali, I know you risked your life to leave Iran in the most dire circumstances, whether it was in the detention center or whether it was uh, um, when you go through this depression when you first get to Norway. In any of those moments, do you think, I, I just want to go back to Iran? Or, uh, I mean, I'm guessing that wasn't really an option. Uh, it wasn't something that I could choose. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have all types of refugees and immigrants. There are some people that they can go back to their home country. So while I lived in these detention centers, there were people that they were able to go back to their country, mm. like Iran, like Iraq, Syria, any country. Uh, and I did not have that option. And I was very jealous, actually. I was very jealous and I was always telling myself that I wish I could I could do that. I wish I could uh, choose something like that. Uh, so, yeah. How much were you able to be in touch with your family back in Iran through all of this? It was very difficult. The lack of communication uh, equipment there. Uh, we had access to telephone for a while and the telephone was so bad. It was landline. And uh, talking to family was so difficult. Reaching the phone number was so difficult. And the internet was so slow. And uh, trying to see your family's pictures, you know, it was so difficult. Mm. Uh, and these difficulties also affect your, your soul, you know. Uh, you're suffering from depression, you're suffering from imprisonment, you're suffering from injustice. So all these together, all these elements together make you like a, a depressed, dark uh, human being, you know, depressed, uh, pressured human being. And uh, I was very lucky that I, I dealt with all these uh, difficulties uh, forced on me and uh, I suddenly got my freedom. How, how much does this live with you on a personal level? Uh, how easy is it, for example, for you to trust people? Uh, I do not trust people that easy now. Uh, not because nobody is trusty, but because of my mental condition. Mm -hmm. uh, Australian go government led me to this situation because I trusted, I trusted international policies. Mm. international human rights declaration. I trusted it. And uh, the trust was broken uh, by one of the countries that has a high ranking of support of human rights yes. and freedom of expression. Yes. Uh, so when all of these things happened, I became a person who could not trust anyone that easy, anything that easy. And uh, until today, I can tell uh, I have I have lots of trust issues, and it's, it's not because of people around it. It's just because of me inside me. Mm. There's a um, there's actually a, a, a large, as you know, as you would know, uh, Persian community uh, in Australia. I know, for example, in Sydney, I mentioned this a few times on the, on this program because um, when we look at our analytics for who people who are listening to us across the uh, the globe on different platforms there's there's many many um, we have a big audience in Sydney Australia I'm guessing a lot of 
Persian immigrants there or, or people who are interested in uh, Iranian affairs, etc. Uh, would would going would actually now going to live in Australia be something that you would ever do? Yeah, yeah. The thing is, I never hated Australia. I never hated uh, Australian people uh, or the people who worked in detention centers. So, so of course, I I would love to go to Australia and live there. Or I have thousands of friends there, uh, and I'm sure if I if I tell everyone that I'm going to Australia, I'm going to be really really welcomed. So uh, these uh, difficulties, these difficulties that I I, I tolerated, they did not affect uh, me or anyone as a human being. Uh, so uh, yeah, if uh, I get the chance to go to Australia, uh, of course I would be very happy, and my friends will be very happy to see me there. I don't think anyone for, would for, would um, blame you if you. Um, at this point in your life, decided to go in a completely different direction. You're in Norway. You you become a an architect or a or a barista or a truck driver or a, a professor or whatever you want to do. Um, but y- you continue to want to speak out about things. You you posted in um, on Instagram in April of last year. Let me quote you. I left the prison camps long ago, but didn't leave the memories, the memories of the children who were born in prison and still remain there, the memories of the ones who died in the camps unfairly, the memories of the people who remained in prison camps without committing a crime. I am their voice. We are their voice, the voice of the children behind the fences. Um, tell, tell me why it's important to you, Ali, to um, continue to want to be that voice. Yeah, the thing is, you know, I meet a lot of students, Norwegian students, and uh, I go and visit lots of schools. And uh, I think uh, what Australian government did to, especially to children, was not fair because children don't choose immigration. Uh, they were they didn't choose to migrate to Australia. Uh, somebody else made the decision for them. They have parents, and then the parents make the decision, not the children. But what Australian government does is that they, they imprison everyone at once. They don't care if it's a child. The child didn't choose immigration. They don't care. It's a refugee. It's an asylum seeker that it must go through detention centers. And, uh, and also, when I was in detention centers, I used to, of course, log into my social media and see uh, the, all these children behind the fences, the photos taken from these children behind the fences. And I was sure those children are seeing their own pictures also mm. behind the fences with the face blurred and uh, the, and all these uh, slogans, you know, carrying around. The thing is, this is not going to be so easy for them when they grow up or in the middle of their, their life. It's not going to be easy for them to forget. And this is what Austria... Australian government created the the suffering, the the torture that these children are carrying with themselves. You know, another thing that Australian government did, which was extremely horrible, uh, was that as soon as you arrive in this detention center, Australian government gives you an ID card, and this ID card includes your name, your picture, your date of birth, and also a number. Yeah. So this number for me was RUF 115, yeah. Romo Uniform Foxtrot 115. And this ID number was my name for over five years. Like the authorities wouldn't call me by my name. They used to call me with number. And when I, when I 
realized that Australian government was doing the same thing to children, not only to adults or middle-aged people, but also to children, calling children like numbers. As an adult, me, being called like a number for years, my brain, my own brain is slowly started devaluing me as a human mm. being because mm. I was nothing but just a number. I didn't have any value. Also, the workers who used to work there unintentionally devalue you as a human being because you're nothing just a number. They're calling you like a number every day. And just imagine, I'm just telling you to, to, to telling this to your audience. Just imagine what happens to the mental health of these children yeah. who have been living through this hell being called like a number in the past 10 years. Can't even own your own name. Exactly. And imagine these children, they get their freedom. And then what happens to them? The children, they don't have any picture of outside world. They don't have any picture of normal school. They don't have a, a beautiful picture of a kindergarten. They have a picture of a prison kindergarten. And, uh, and I know some of these children, as I said, we had a baby on board on the boat that I went to Australia. And we had so many children born in detention centers, mm. you know, and these children, they, as soon as they open their eyes, they are behind the fences. They are two, three years old. They are still behind the fences. They see the pictures behind the fences. They see their parents going behind the fences and protesting to the Australian government. And I don't know if I have to call it irresponsible parents. Some of these parents, they used to take pictures of their own children with the slogans in their hands. And, you know, just imagine what happens to the mental health of these children yeah. when they grow up. And how long are the, you know, as an adult person, I am 31 years old now, and I'm still carrying the, the memories. I'm still carrying the pain and the torture with me. And yeah, just imagine all those children. Is the, is the Manus Island prison a, a refugee camp? I mean, I might as well call it prison, but is, is it still open? Uh, in 2017, they closed it down. And then they built new accommodation, actually. Then they moved the, play, the people from there to the new accommodation, which was closer to, uh, to the center of the island. Uh, uh, but, the, you know, they called it a different name. So they say they closed down the detention center and then they, they opened another accommodation center to keep the immigrants there. But it sounds like you don't think that um, the conditions have changed that much. No, the condition didn't change. You know, uh, people there uh, are not healthy. You know, they spent five, ten years be behind the fences in prison, and then now they're being moved to another accommodation. You know, they're not they're not normal people. They do not believe that that accommodation is their home or the, the healthy area. You know, how much time do you spend drawing these days? I usually uh, I draw very little actually lately. Uh, and that's just because I uh, do work on other projects and uh, uh, I have a life that I have to like uh, pay my bills and I have to like uh, uh, develop myself as a, a, as a person in the society. Uh, uh, but uh, I also spent so much time on researching and uh, immigration researches and spend the uh, time uh, talking to uh, lots of people in my meetings, in my storytelling sessions. And uh, yeah. 
it's it's um i i really appreciate you telling uh your story i really appreciate you coming on our program taking the time um hearing the questions and 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 responding in the way you have i um if you were to um if you were to look back at at at, at you <laughs> you know 10 years ago uh or so um the the 20 year old leaving iran um what would you what what do you feel like you've learned you've most learned in that decade amongst uh all the ways you've educated yourself through this this journey you've been on yeah okay so uh i have to say that when i was a child i used to uh i started drawing cartoons when i was five years old i started copying cartoons from different artists uh, comic books and i always looked at all these cartoons in different magazines and then seeing that all these famous cartoonists they have their own signature they have their own name and they're publishing their works on the magazines and lots of people know them even if they don't write their name down and uh, i always wished to be one of these people someone like that and when i was in prison in australia all those people that I used to wish to be like when I was a child. All those internationally famous artists, they draw cartoons for me and mm. post them on hashtag eatingfish. And that was such a huge achievement in my life. I actually reached one of my wishes to be known as a cartoonist, you know, to be known as an internationally well-known cartoonist. And uh, that was such an achievement for me. It happened. It happened during the time that I suffered so much. Uh, but I look at it as a very, very positive uh, thing in my life. Okay, so that's that. That's an, uh, amazing. That's a goal that you, that, that a dream that you um, achieved. What What about what you've learned about yourself or about the key to life, if I can ask you you that as if we're a hundred years old, you know? Yeah, I I don't know how to answer that. Uh, I believe uh, I am a totally different person than I thought I would be when I was a child. And uh, the person I am now is more patient uh this person is more uh i care more about life now i care more about small moments i care more about small happiness time happy time that you make with your friends that you make with your family uh because i craved it for over five years you know mm. and in that five years i realized how much life means by just by just hanging around by just being you know and uh yeah it, it suddenly created a different philosophy for me and my life I, th I think you do know how to answer the question that was beautiful <laughs> <laughs> ali dorani thank you so much for this today it was a it was a pleasure to be here you know the thing is uh you asked me to be on this program the thing is i'm not just talking about my story we are sharing uh, the, the stories of the voiceless children, voiceless people behind the fences. And this is such a great opportunity for them to be heard. And I really, really appreciate you for giving me the chance, giving uh, all those people the chance to be here. Thank you, Alijan. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Thank you. Bye. Ali Dorani, uh, better known perhaps by his pen name Eaton Fish, is an Iranian cartoonist and activist who gained recognition for drawings about his everyday life while being detained in a notorious Australian refugee camp on Manus Island, Papua New Guinea, for almost four years. You can catch his works at eatonfish.com. Ali Dorani joined us from Stavanger, Norway today. Back on for Keon, Reza, and Shia, uh, and um, oh, wow. silence quite a story, eh? Yeah. Quite a story. Yeah, I know. So, what what was your greatest takeaway from that story, Shia? For seeking freedom, mm-hmm. you oh, have to crazy. go in, into the mouth of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I'm I'm sad. I, I, honestly, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit sad. What what, what, is, what was your immediate takeaway, Keon? What do you feel like right now, hearing? After you hearing just Ali? what what is shocking to me is that the level of desperation that people uh, people are so desperate in Iran to go through. As Shia said, they're willing to face death just to get out of there, just to live a free life, and at any price. And the sad reality is that we don't hear about this stuff very often. And this happens every day, not just from Iran, from different countries. People are desperate to get out of war, of famine, all of these horrible things. And um, it's just, unfortunately, it's not as covered in the media. Well, the sort of and especially in, in Australia. I, I had no clue that a country, country that is, is... supposed to be a first world country, part of the United Nations right, Human Rights right. Commission. This, since 1953, like the human rights, like the, the, the advertised the as a yeah. great democracy, yeah. and, and yeah. what they did, is he, what he, he was right when he said Ali was his politics, because what they're trying to do, it's the right wing government that is in place, really. What they're trying to do, they're trying to deter immigrants from coming to the country, but they can't advertise it, so they're trying to create word of mouth situation by lawyering it right. So by law, they're getting away with murder, essentially. Like with well, they're also passing the buck. There was that thing he said where he said, "What did he say?" He said, he said they, they blame the, the blame. That's the right. They Papua send them Guinea to this island yeah. in Papua New Guinea, and then they say, "Well, that's not our territory." Yeah, yeah, that's not territory. Yeah. He, and then Papua New Guinea says, "Well, no, these are this is, these are Australian. Yeah, uh, they're not immigration our camps. prisoners. We're not responsible for them." So that's that's what I'm saying. By doing that, they're getting away. They're getting around. That's a loophole for international laws. Rights you know, you know, halfway through the 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 interview, you're going, "Oh, this is um, this is the story about how difficult it can be being in prison," yeah. Yeah. you know, and then you're like, "Why is he in prison?" I mean, yeah. this is yeah. you know, yeah. they're, 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 this person has none of these people it have done anything, yeah. you know, they've yeah. just except want to leave a country. And mm-hmm. back to before the interview, reading the charter on the world refugee, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, the 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 right to seek safety, and uh, I mean, it's. It's a you know he's just looking for basic rights and he gets put in this um, what sounds like a, a a really horrendous kind of Extremely. prison camp. Yeah. One doesn't want to use 
the words concentration camp, but I yeah. mean, it's, like it's, it. it's basically yeah. and it's gotten progressively worse. Like they treated him like he's a true criminal, whereas like they they they, they strict not restrict they 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 didn't give him access to paper. Like as they thought he was gonna plan out like a right. escape from prison. That's insanity. Like to put on a young refugee from another country that like what are what are your it's just and again it's so easy to blame racism on a micro level but i think the problem is much more macro than that mm. like who are the people in charge that are, that are letting that condition be well, well let me let me get exist. to that let me get let me to two steps back with something keon said uh when you listen to a story like that the immediate reaction is to, for I think, is to be angry with Australia for yeah. the treatment of those seeking asylum. But then, upon reflection, as Keon was intimating, people wouldn't be seeking asylum yeah. were it not for the unlivable conditions in Iran for some mm-hmm. folks, right? That's true, Forcing yeah. them into exile. So, so are your frustrations? Should our frustrations be more targeted at Australia or at Iran? Shia, <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. Um, what a question. Uh, yeah, it is an interesting question. Uh, but definitely, I would say both. But yeah, I, I blame my country, Iran. But in, in that in that boat, it's not only Iranian. It's like it's yeah. they are from all over mm-hmm. the place. So but but yeah, yeah, Ishaya is right. People are yeah. from all over the place. Yeah. Like, would the Ukrainian blame like Russia for attacking them, or like well, Australia well, yes. for not? Yeah, but of yeah. course you would. But, <laughs> but, but but the thing is, is okay. F- hang on a second, though. He had to leave Iran. We don't know the exact story, and it's his right to, you know, keep it private, whatever. But he had to leave Iran. It's not a surprise, as he said. We all know the situation in Iran, etc. Um, so, so I feel like ultimately, you know, the responsibility lies with Iran in terms of. I mean, that that would seem like the you know, if we're addressing the roots of this. But the other thing that he said was, unlike Iran, perhaps. The promise of what Australia is mm-hmm. promising something yeah. on the world stage, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, he said, if I knew I that when I gone. get there I'm going to be put in a prison, I wouldn't have gone. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I wouldn't have gone on that boat and all yeah. of that. Right? Yeah. Um, and and I know you've told the story a few times, Reza, <laughs> but I, I mean, we don't. You know, your situation yeah. going to different China, countries yeah. in the world and stuff when you left Iran, but. It's it's that thing that Keon was saying of the desire is so mm-hmm. great to want to get out because you're just going man this this kid at the time he was you know whatever twenty he said yeah. or something he's looking at a boat and going yeah. that thing's gonna sink yeah. but I have mm-hmm. no choice I have to get on that yeah. right? I, I that that sense of urgency to wanting to get out of and I say and I it saddens me to say Iran but yeah somewhere a place where you feel like you're being suffocated for some reason is I understand that I can I had identify with that like I remember like I was I had I'd left Iran if I was on the way to I was supposed to go to United States and uh, um, um, I got caught in China I was spent some time in jail and then I got out they were gonna deport me back mm-hmm. to Iran mm-hmm. like I could have like mm-hmm. got just simply go go home right everybody kept saying just go home you want to go home like tell us who you really are so we can send you home and all mm-hmm. I was saying is that that I don't want to go home that's the mm-hmm. point 
I don't want to go home. Send me anywhere else but home. And they did. They sent me to different jails. What about <laughs> now that you work with Shia? Would you still? <laughs> <laughs> Shia is A jail so now. bad that he's stuck with yeah. Shia. Oh. But can I say something about art, actually? Well, I, I want Keon to answer this question first about the uh, where you where your frustrations lie when in this. The, the, I mean, the, the story is ostensibly about what happened to him based on what the Australian government did. Mm-hmm. But, but you were pointing out that this is actually a, about Iran for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I reflect it, on that. That's where it starts. I think the, it's rooted at like the government making it so unlivable for its own people. And they're basically prisoners in Iran. Like, look at Reza. He went through the same thing. It's, <laughs> they're willing to go through anything to get out of there. So it starts with Iran. I mean, Australia is not innocent by any means, but um, to me, but you can go back even further than that. You know, it reminds me of um, years ago, this made headlines. Remember that little boy, the Syrian boy that got washed up on shore mm. and similar situation. He was dead, obviously. Yeah. Um, he was just trying, the, his family was trying to get out of the war in Syria and yeah. the boat i guess overturned and a yeah. bunch of people died and that made headlines because the yeah, picture yeah. was so shocking seeing a little boy on that beach mm-hmm. and who do you blame in that you can't blame syria you uh, well, <laughs> all these different countries that started this war there so yeah. it goes back so far that it's like who can you blame yeah. to make these countries so unlivable but uh, yeah so in, in that case it is it is true that if you support the idea that people should be able to seek asylum and and get it yeah uh then i mean i don't even know these these immigration camps uh it's what a what a fib you know (laughs) what what an an idea what an idea like uh i mean the the concept that yeah we're going to put you in this place where you can't be in contact with anybody can't have your basic rights for for years yeah so it's funny canada has that too and yeah we do have that but here's the thing we have it only for people who are flight risks um uh, escaped like immigrants because when you migrate to canada whether or not you have a passport if you're an immigrant if you're a refugee sorry uh they process you and then you're free to go you're you can stay in the country like go go through the process but if you in montreal if you don't have any identification with you at least it was that's how it was like 16 years ago if you don't have any identification with you to show who you actually are because usually you travel with a fake passport most refugees do right uh they put you in a detention uh Mm. uh, center which is in laval in quebec Hmm. there's uh, probably updates on this because of most likely you know recent crises but but we we should find out like yeah it did feel like like that was like a like it was a prison type like it was run that way but it was very clean very there? organized yeah i was there oh. i was there for okay. i was there 20 days you had access to telephone internet everything that, that 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 doesn't sound as bad no that's what yeah, i'm saying yeah. like we do we do have that too but it's humane like right. Right. other like austria has that too same thing but for people who or other uh, like uh, germany for people that are maybe flight what, risk, can whatever. i just ask what when you left yeah 
um, because it was well, it wasn't around the same time. It was a little earlier. Than, it was than like him. yeah. But did, did, was Australia not an option for it you? It was. It was. It was. Why I, did you end up? Or I mean, how did I you end up here go, rather than? I for me, it wasn't a matter of like I just want to go anywhere. I just I wanted to go to California. <laughs> and, <laughs> you, and you got there. Go. Oh wait, I, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the thing. So close. So close. <laughs> Yeah. Th- thanks, Reza. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. the guy actually the yeah, human on behalf of all Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, guys, but hey, yeah, I'm proud. True North. What were you going to say about um, uh, art, Shia? Yeah. Because that's the other part of this story that's really inspiring. This idea yeah, of exactly. I mean, it's it's interesting that he, uh, I believe, he started to like painting in order to escape. Uh, the prison of his mind, yes. the prison of the negative yes. thoughts. Yes, he didn't even know. That yeah. was the part of the story I didn't actually know, that that he didn't know that this was going to be his yeah. way out. Yeah. He was yeah. doing it for so, his own yeah. catharsis. And I think it works everywhere. If you don't feel, I mean, mm-hmm. if you think that your environment is not good, you have to first escape from your, you know, your mind. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. it makes you to escape from yeah. I think the worst put, I think the worst part of all of this is the fact that there's children that are born into this reality and that's all yeah. they yeah. know. Mm. They never know. That's his mission. That's no. his thing at the end yeah. about the kids born in these yeah. camps, yeah. The, I that that was the most shocking part of it all, I think. The, one of our team, let me ask another question because one of our team members was calling Ali Dorani a brown refugee today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his implication was being that there, there's a hierarchy or a, a kind of a caste mm-hmm. system when it comes to refugees and, and how developed countries mm-hmm. deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how much should we reflect on, on the way Iranian refugees might be treated and welcomed versus uh, white refugees from Eastern Europe, for example? I think to, to, for my perception has been over the years that it's, it has to do with a political climate like which which government is that in place what's trending more like there was a time where um if you were a refugee from an eastern european country um um like there were a lot of like um um um, lgbt uh, refugees from russia that would uh, come here and they had a hard time their case would be in processing time for five six years it was in like and they would they would hear that from their lawyers that is case by case but right now like russia is tough but then, like um, Syrian cases were being processed, left, right, and center. The political climate was mm. like it, that's how it was. It was just. But uh, at this point, I think because given the condition of Iran, um, <laughs> I mean, sad it saddens me to say it. Brown refugees and white refugees, I think, are on the same level. Given that just the condition of the world, like Ukraine, mm. what's happening over there. I don't think what it's What do you that mean they're same level? Well, what, you what think do you they're mean? treated the same? By, by, no, no, no. I mean, in terms but, of but the Muhammad political... who brought this up today, his his point was, this is racism. Yeah. This is, uh, this is what's happening What in this particular case. He, he's convinced this was mm-hmm. that has to do with Ali Dorani. Or, I mean, being we're brown. not being exactly yeah. about his skin, but but the, but caste system ma- yeah. metaphorically or or you know symbolically, he's a brown refugee. Yeah, he's an Iranian. But there is there is there is. I think there's something to that for sure. And there's I, I just I see it blatantly in the media. There's more sympathy there to, that, to yeah. for example, yeah. white Ukrainian yeah, refugees yeah, yeah. than there yeah. is to basically mm-hmm. any other non-white refugee. Yeah. It's no, I, I I buy that. 
I agree with that. But then the argument is, oh, because they're more like us. But at mm. what point is what? What is us yeah. uh, in yeah. Canada now? Yeah. Us is us, right? I know. So, I know. so yeah. us is constantly changing. It's so. it, but and yet there's still this notion that yeah. more like us would mean yeah. a white uh, Ukrainian. It's uh, true. Yeah. It is true. Not that they shouldn't be allowed asylum. Or there was something that he didn't. He did not mention. If you travel uh, as a refugee, you travel to Australia by plane. You're treated very differently, and you're put in a different camp. Oh. It is. It's still a camp. It's in another uh, island, but it's not. But it's not Menace Island. Mm. And and like, what is the difference now? Like, why people who can afford uh-huh. like a plane ticket, yes. so they're more proper? Is that is that like the thought process? Maybe. I don't know. That's interesting. Even that though. Even the idea of again for someone who grew up in the West, the idea of paying a smuggler. You know, you're not like paying somebody an alley for a joint. Like you're paying yeah. for for your life. Yes. Yeah. The title of this episode, The Cost of Seeking Freedom. Mm-hmm. You're paying, and in some cases, your life savings to, in the hands of somebody you don't know, right? Yeah. You, and there's no background check. No. You know, you might know somebody else who used the same guy or something like that. The deal was the smugglers were going to get him to Australia. Yeah. Which is not, not directly. So you're paying someone to take you to Indonesia where you're going to get on another boat where and you don't yeah. even speak English and you're I mean the whole thing is so foreign to me. Yeah. I know you know and it's not the way you came Shia but uh, right but I you what do you mean Well like, you didn't pay anybody to no, get no, out no, you know no, no. you did I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Keon was the one collecting the money, so she definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was the agent. She overcharged the hell out. I of wouldn't me. have let you in, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I wanted that Shia discount. We're after that. No, no, but even that, like, I, I think once when you told the story, you talked about how you're. I mean, just even that, how you decide who you're going to entrust with your life. That's to, the thing. It's a purely trust business, and he, he, it was so interesting. Like uh, when he was talking about. Um, dealing with the human smugglers because what that does and and just how like who he has become right now in terms of his thought process dealing with people and just becoming a better um personality anal- analyst mm-hmm. in general because that business well, he, said he doesn't trust anybody that's the thing naturally naturally yeah. and you you do lose that sense of trust because it's first of all is it that bit like what that business that smuggling business is a trust business simple as that and here's a trust one-way street this is a one-way street trust hmm. you're gonna have to trust the smuggler simple as that usually if they if they're nice they'd be like oh give me half the money right now if he really knows what he's doing and he's like, and he knows you he trusts you hmm. that he can get his money back from you he'll be like then the rest like right before i'm about to like send you off to your destination like last basically trip Mm -hmm. but normally it's i'm gonna take all the money up front and i'm gonna leave right now i'm gonna fuck off and you'll hear from me maybe you won't Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you will but you use somebody that you've heard like it did Uh, you you, somebody else has used or something but even that because usually when people introduce like introduce people to other people they're Mm -hmm. like oh yo i use somebody but i don't know i have a phone number that's how it works when we talked about i think you know as i said in the in the interview when they're making the movie version of this it's it's, his story is such a movie ali dorani there's that part where He's in a jungle or something. He's going to the boat and he sees the broken down boat. Yeah. And he says, I got to get in that. My, there's no option. 
because if I, where, where am I going to go? I don't even know how to get back to where yeah. uh, there's only only moving forward yeah, at that point, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is actually. And a key. he can swim. Oh, that, shit. that wasn't in any of the research. I didn't know that he. It was like I can't. Yeah. I couldn't swim. That was crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. That is crazy. Because usually you have like, f- like fear of what, like crazy. You wouldn't even get on a boat. This guy, man. Damishkarm, damishkarm. Yeah. He went further than you did. Oh, the dude, come well, his on. cartoons nah, are was, amazing. Yeah. The work he's doing is yeah. great. Yeah, it's incredible. All right. Any f- any final words, Shaya? Um, <laughs> oh. Simple well, as this. That's very yeah, nice, Shaya. Yeah, yeah, that's very nice. Yeah, Put that on a t-shirt, buddy. I know. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, guys. Captain thank Reza, you, Groovy Shaya, the fabulous Keon. Uh, see you guys next Monday. See you Thursday, Shia. Or, of course. I mean, we didn't see have you, letters See you today? every day. We, didn't, we, do, we do have letters, but we're tight for time. Oh. You wanted to do Avia? Yeah. Thank God we don't can have I, letters. Can I, can I still do we the We could do the theme. Yeah. Guys, we, we do don't have the Avia, but we're going to give you the theme. Can <laughs> we, Shia? Sorry, I cannot do that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. You have to face my guy. I know. I mean, they come to this country and then they want their own oh, theme. I know. <laughs> this is full time for Rook for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, our website, rookmedia.com, is where you can find all of our episodes, including our previous week's letters of the of the week, where the, the theme song with um, Reza's voice <laughs> is mellifluous tones. Yeah. Uh, thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roham, talented Anahita. Ponta, the artist, the fabulous Keon, Super Paris, a smart Pega, Ahai Merdad, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already on any of our platforms or all of them. You can become a patron by supporting us by pressing the support us button at rookmedia.com. And uh, see you Thursday for our next episode. In the meantime, as ever, Reza. Mizun Mashi!